tap into the psychology of engagement and more. This is where we talk about life, learning, and everything in between. This is the Lifelong Podcast, a show for those of you who love to ask why. Because we're marketers. It's because we're coaches. It's because we're change makers. Each week, we dive into the big questions and explore the psychology of engagement with strategies, tactics, and special guests along the way. Now, here's your guide, the visibility hacking queen herself, Coach Molly. Hey, visibility hackers, and welcome back to the Lifelong Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Molly from visibilityhacking.com, and today we're diving back into the psychology of marketing. Before we dive into any of that though, I have to remind you to find me on all of your favorite social platforms. So come on over, hang out, chat with me on Clubhouse. I'm Coach Molly with an E. You can find me on YouTube at Three Pines Leadership. Same with Instagram. You can find me on Facebook and the place I hang out the most though is a Visibility Hackers Facebook group. So come join me. It'll be fun. We'll have a great time. We'll talk about leveling up your influence, your authority, and bottom line, your income using really simple tools from psychology, from marketing, from education, and more. It's all about creating communities of people who love to move themselves forward and to build on their skills. So I will teach you how to do all of that. So come on over, hang out, and... Of course, make sure you're subscribed to the Lifelong Podcast on all of your favorite podcast platforms. So now we got that out of the way, let's dive into what we're learning about today. Today we're talking about learning curves. Okay, you've probably heard the phrase, a steep learning curve. So we're going to dive into what that means and how it's actually usually misinterpreted when we're talking about it in um, usual context. So today we're talking learning curves. (laughs) But actually, I'll get into this graphic in a little bit. But before, we got to actually talk about what learning curves are. So they are a graphic representation between how proficient someone is at a task and the amount of experience they have with that skill. The more someone performs that task, the better they actually get at it overall, right? That's what we hope at least. So when we hear the phrase a steep learning curve, it's usually um, meant to represent rapid learning, rapid progress. That's cool. The first person who described this idea of learning curves, his name was Herman Ebbinghaus, and this was in 1885. And this has been co-opted by different areas of thinkers from economists to sports psychologists to educators and psychologists and so many more fields have used this same mathematical reasoning. I guess that's the easiest way to say it. (laughs) So Ebbinghaus, his tests involved memorizing a series of nonsense syllables and recording um, success levels over a series of trials. That's not really the best representation, but it's where this theory started. And I promise I will get into why this is important for you as a marketer, as an educator, as a non-traditional educator, and so much more. Okay, so just bear with me because after Ebbinghaus, he started with these nonsense syllables and they didn't quite make sense, but he was seeing that there were certain kinds of trends happening. 
he wasn't able to really narrow it down yet. But what he did was he set an incredibly important foundation in which so many other thinkers were able to launch from. So we now see a crossover between psychology, where Ebbinghaus was working, and economics. So there was Paul Theodore Wright. He described the effect of learning on production costs. So we're deep into the economy here, right? And he was particularly looking at the aircraft industry. So his examples are very tightly tied to that one example, but he was able to use this mathematical model that he then started calling a learning curve. So learning versus proficiency. We need to talk about that in, in as two different words because they're completely different. Learning is the acquisition of knowledge. Whereas proficiency is your ability to act upon that knowledge and your ability to be uh, proficiency is everything from efficiency. So doing a process quicker, doing a process with less cost, if you're looking in terms of finance or doing it in a way um, that is going to use less brain power. We've all learned a skill at some point in our life that took us a ton of time to think about. We had to focus all of our time and attention on that skill when it was first, when it was quite new to us. But as we continued and repeated those tasks over and over again, we became more proficient. We, it became easier to perform that task. Maybe we were able to do it quicker. Maybe we were able to do it with more detail. Maybe we were able to do it in a way that allowed us to think about something completely different while we were still performing that task. That is the difference between learning, the acquisition of the knowledge, and proficiency, your ability to act on that knowledge and actually create or impact the world around you. So now we'll talk about this lovely representation here. So these are four different represent graphical representations of learning curves. We have the most, uh, the most common or the idealized uh, model, which is this one closest to me here in the bottom right hand corner, which looks like an S. This is called an S curve or a sigmoid function. The S curve is the ideal form when it comes to learning curves because it means that we are slowly accumulating knowledge. So we have time at the bottom axis and we have performance or proficiency along the Y axis. So we have, as we continue along in time, we're slowly gathering skills. So our proficiency is, is, is building upon itself. And then we get to a stage in the middle where we're able to make large leaps in our proficiency because we now have a foundation of knowledge that we can act upon, right? We can move that needle high in, the, in proficiency. And then we get to a point where there we, we can continue to learn a little bit and we can slowly keep that line going up or we can reach a place of stagnation um, or known as a plateau where we're not really learning anything else. We're not really getting any better at what we're doing. Um, and that is a cue that you need to push yourself a little bit further. Once you reach that plateau, that says, hey, it's time to pick a new skill to learn. It's time to go back to that learning process so that we can start that curve all over again. There are limits to how much we can learn, and that's why we reach plateaus. In the case of improvement of proficiency, it'll start slowly, then it'll become rapid in that middle before it finally levels off. That is the traditional S-curve. The next one we'll see is exponential growth, 
which is uh, the bottom left-hand corner here, where we're just constantly building and building and building and building and building, and we can continue to become more and more proficient without a limit. That's pretty exciting. So proficiency can increase with no upward limit. I can't really give you an example of what that would look like because I've never really experienced that. The next one is the one right above that top left-hand corner, which is exponential rise or fall with a limit. So you can have this same shape or you can have it flipped upside down. And that would be where we have that exponential rise in knowledge, but we reach at that upward plateau that we talked about with the S-curve. This is a realistic um, scenario for sure. The next one is a power law, which we actually don't have represented here. A power law um, means that we're going to have this ton of proficiency to start with, and as time increases, we're actually going to decrease in that proficiency. This is usually a model that is seen more often when it comes to cost and when it comes to um, looking at efficiencies in your business um, and in that learning and development process. We're not going to dive too deeply into that right now. But I wanted to share with you a little example because you're probably looking at me going, uh, still Molly, I'm still listening, but I still don't know how this applies to me. When you're building your courses and when you're building opportunities for your people to learn from you, you need to keep in mind my favorite theme, which is gamification. When we think about how our people are actually learning and we find a way to motivate them to continue doing that, we, we create this wonderful opportunity for people. So let's talk about the S-curve first, then we'll talk about how we can gamify that experience. So with the S-curve, it's broken into three distinct spots, right? We have that slow acquisition of skill at the bottom, which is where we're teaching them the basics. This is in class when we're learning how the class functions. This is where we're doing our introductions to people, where we're warming up and we're, we're breaking that ice, for example. We're, get, we're making sure that all of our students are on the same page about what they're learning. Maybe we have some students who are brand new to the topic, and maybe we have students who have taken a few classes in it before or who have a passing knowledge of it. Maybe if, uh, if you're running courses online, you might also have the amazing opportunity of having a student who is somewhat advanced in the subject matter as well as part of your mix. So how do you meet the needs of all of those students and make sure that everyone's able to progress with that beautiful curve? Well, we lay that foundation in the first spot. We're going to, every student's going to have a different look to the bottom of their S-curve, right? Depending on where they are and how quickly they need to learn the set of skills that you're teaching them. Then once you've given them the tools and they know how to use the tools, think of it like you're, you're in construction. You're going to give people the toolbox. You're going to show them how to use a hammer. You're going to practice with them so that they, they know how to hammer a nail and not hit their thumb. And then they're going to get to a point where they don't need you to watch them anymore. They are able to actually perform those tasks on their own. Their proficiency is going to skyrocket. That's this beautiful space that we get to mold and play with as educators. So how do we do this? This is where gamification comes in. If we want to stop that plateau at the top, if we want to keep that plateau at somewhat of an angle so that they're continuing to progress in their skills, their proficiency is going to continue to get better and better and better. That's that lifelong learning model we talk about. 
So how do we do this? We do this, in my opinion, we do this through gamification. We do this by looking at different industries and how they're teaching their people. I'm a big fan of undercover teaching skills. So I look at things like video games. How are video game designers designing their worlds, their environments, and their learning processes for their players or for their students? If you've ever played a video game before, you, a well-designed video game will adjust its level of difficulty for each player. As players learn new skills, learn new things about the game, they then practice those. They can prove to the game that they are proficient in them. The difficulty level will then increase. The magic with gamification is that there is a, a little bit of fine tuning you have to do. You can't just crank that dial all the way up to 11 because it's the perception of difficulty. It's the perception in the player's mind that they are able to actually win this game. It does not matter what their level of skill is. It is their perception that they can win the game. That's what's going to keep them motivated to keep going. If you turn that dial down to zero and they lose the perception or they, they look at the game and go, I don't even need to try, there's no point in continuing forward, then you lose them. If you turn it up to 11 and they go, there's no way I can win this, I'm out, then you're going to lose them as well. So it's that fine tuning of adjusting that level of difficulty for each student. How do we do that? We pay attention to where they are in their learning curve. We pay attention to the way that we design our models and the way that we design our lessons. So if we, I'm a huge fan of project-based learning, and that's because it gives each and every student their own uniquely positioned experience um, to learn the skills that they need to learn. I love putting together live streams and videos, for example. So let me talk about some of my current students and how, how this is going differently for every student. So I have some students who are so amazing at the content they want to present. They know it inside and out. They are amazing speakers. They are engaging. They're beautiful on camera. They are, I want to watch them every day. Doesn't matter what they're doing. They themselves are interesting. But they're in my program because they want to learn how to put it all together. So their area of learning, their challenge becomes something so different than my student who walked into the class as an incredible graphic designer who really needs to work on getting his message out there. There's a difference. Each of those students is going to approach the game of my course with a different outlook on what that difficulty level is. Here's another example, more of a classroom example. I went to a crazy high school where um, our teachers really individualized those learning moments for us. So this is a great example. We were given, um, we were given seminars for our grade 12 English class and we could pick whatever topic we wanted. We had control over that. And then we'd line up in front of our teacher after the first or second class and we'd give him a list of all of the topics we're interested in. He would pick one, he would put it in a time slot um, that made sense so that all of the presentations kind of lined up and he could, maybe they were historically lined up or whatever. He, he contextualized it all for us. But what was really neat was that each of us had a unique level of challenge. 
So for me, I wasn't afraid of standing up in front of my class and talking for a few hours. I would professionally be speaking on stages at this point in my life. Um, so for me, my challenge was finding different modes to learn with. That teacher gave me a 24-hour seminar. That's a month of a month of class. A month of class. That's a long time. So I knew that if I just stood up in front of the classroom and talked, which was my comfort zone, they'd get bored after a while. So I had to look for different ways to teach that same topic, but from different angles to keep it interesting. So I brought in different poets. I workshopped some stuff with them. We had a field trip on the last day to the poetry slam. Like it was a really cool immersive experience. For me, it, that was the challenge. But for my best friend who was sitting next to me, standing up in front of the class and opening her mouth just to ask a question left her shaking in her boots. So for her, that challenge was completely different. She would not have completed the class if she was given the same project parameters as I was. So instead, she was given 30 minutes, 45 minutes, something like that. That in and of itself was a massive obstacle for her. That was her learning moment. That was her exponential rise in her S-curve. You have to look for those opportunities where you can look for those individual moments for your students. So you're probably looking at me going, uh, but Molly, uh, I've automated a lot of my class because that's what you've taught me. And, and now I have a thousand students. I can't give that individualized attention to each and every one of them. I know. That's where we group our students and we look at different um, trends that are happening with our students. We have to make sure that we're contacting them, we're talking to them, especially when we're first developing that course. As we're learning how other people will learn with our, 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 our lessons, how they take that information in, how they process it, what questions do they have. If you can group your students into different groups where you're like, my course for example, I have people who are who, who their learning spaces, that's what I think of it as. Their learning space is the graphics. Their learning space is the tech setup. Their learning space is the content. Their learning space is creating community and engagement. Different spaces where you can really lean into those and allow your students to find where their unique space to skyrocket their uh, learning is. So look to video games. It's pretty cool um, how they do it. But now you're like, okay, I need more of an example um, from a classroom. I need, I need that traditional idea. So teachers know that content can be presented in a variety of different sequences, but that some sequences are more impactful and more effective than others. And the reason for this is that some kinds of content are easier to remember than others. So depending on their level of difficulty, depending on what they're juxtaposed against, depending on where they are in a sequence, some students will be able to follow that train of thought while others might say, uh, I feel like I've missed a lesson. You ever felt that? I know I felt that. I definitely have felt that. So teachers need to understand the primary Regency effects and often present that because they forget about that learning curve. They forget about that they have to walk their students along a path. They can't just drop them into a whole bunch of content. You ever been in an online course where it was so poorly designed, or at least the course designer didn't think about the importance of instructional design? 
And what they did was they just threw a whole bunch of content in there because it makes them look bigger than they are. And then you're left to just kind of figure it out. Yeah, that is bad instructional design. Instead, you want to think about who your student is and what stories are going through their head when they walk into your course. How can you address those stories right then and there so that they feel equipped with that toolbox they need so that they can, so that they actually know, okay, we're going to do this step by step. We're going to pick up the hammer. We're going to pick up the nail and we're going to start doing this together. And eventually I know as a student, I will have the skills and knowledge to skyrocket that forward to progress because I know step by step by step what I'm doing. So in Live Academy, for example, my live streaming is live streaming course, I help you figure out how to create your stage, what your content is going to be. And then we move into step by step by step, how to set up our technology, how to create our name bars, how to create our overlays, how to set up our waiting rooms, how to get cool music, all of that step by step by step. And that way, my students have this beautiful beautiful learning curve that just continues forward, forward, forward. And the way that the course is designed is that once you've gotten through the two levels of foundations, it's like this self-discovery course where you want to go in this direction and learn how to do this particular thing. We got resources for that. But my students, when they get to that point, they are equipped with the skills to be able to understand where they want to go on that map and how and what skills they want to acquire when they do that. I don't just let my students go wander freely in the environment. That is because I care about their learning curve. So understanding the context that your lessons are presented in can be a tricky subject, especially when we're talking about teaching online because our students aren't from the same neighborhood anymore. They don't have that same frame of reference. Instead, we're working with students from across the globe. We're working with students of varying age and skill levels. We're looking at students who are incredibly diverse and that calls on us as non-traditional educators to meet those needs and to do that in a way that's going to separate us from all of the other people who are honestly just marketers out there. They're not educators. But when we can combine those two worlds together, it creates such a difference. So I want to show you this other um, image for a moment because I think it also... Um, it, it, it's also really important to note when we talk about our learning curves. Our learning curves, we're, so often we're talking about over time increasing our proficiency. But what happens when we have a poorly designed course? What can happen is that our people will actually start to become less proficient over time. And that's because we're not reinforcing the learning. What we're doing is saying, all right, here's a skill, here's how to do it, moving on to the next one. Instead of breaking our learning into modules, for example, where we go back, we re-examine what we've learned, we reinforce that learning, then we go on to the next module. And maybe a few modules down the road, we reinforce again what we've already learned. When you build upon skills by reinforcing what we've already learned, that can lead to deeper, better, longer lasting retention of that information. And when we retain that information, 
our progress will skyrocket. So make sure that you are paying attention to that learning curve your students have. This graphic here blows my mind. So what it says is that 100% of that knowledge will, will remain in that student's brain immediately after you teach it. And this is... <laughs> This is after we've talked about information filtering. Um, so this is just the information that, that sits in our, our uh, student's brain. 100% of it will be there immediately after you've just taught it. And that will drop to 60% 20 minutes later. It'll drop to 30% the next day and it will drop to 25% in one week. That 75% of what you've been teaching is not being retained. So if you make sure that you understand that timeline and you build in those reinforcement moments, that's beautiful. Beautiful. Now you're probably looking at me and going, yeah, but Molly, my, my program's really short. I've done all that reinforcing. My people have graduated. How do I make sure that they don't lose that information that they've already gained from me? Because I want them to progress forward. I want them to move forward. Well... There's different ways. So an old friend of mine um, got in contact with me recently um, and he's working with adults um, in this blended learning situation where I guess the hammer and nails really fits in um, with his, <laughs> what he's teaching. So one thing I suggested to him is having a graduation every six months. And that is because you can reinforce those learnings as well. And you can do this by highlighting your students who have graduated, showing them where they've moved with those skills, talking about what's the most impactful skill that that person learned, tying back those successes to the skills that your students are currently learning so that in that graduation moment, you're not just the, the people showing up to the graduation are not just the graduates. They're the graduates and your current students so that they can start to see themselves in those graduates and connect that back to what they're actively learning. So that when they come back to the classroom, they now see that there's a path to follow and they know how to get there because you are their guide. They are much more likely to retain that information when they have an, something applicable to, to, something applicable to apply it to. Yeah, that's what we're going to say. <laughs> so here are my two biggest tips for you if you are uh, looking at implementing uh, that learning curve idea into your design of your program. So first thing is use interactions to boost user retention. Uh, and this can be in, in a classroom setting, we would do quizzes, we would do little assignments, tests, that kind of stuff. Well, that's boring, right? Uh, so how do we but it's important because it shows, it gets the learner to process the information and then it shows the instructor that the student has actually learned that information. So how can we do that with technology that isn't just going to f meet what we did face to face, but how can we do it in a way that's way better? Well, technology gives us a ton of different ways to do this. So looking for ways to have interaction. Say you're doing a live stream course, looking for ways that you can have interaction in your chat where people are actively writing down what you're saying. Super important. If you're giving a training, for example, you don't want your people to just put you on their computer and then go do something else while they listen to you. No, we want more modes of our brain active at the same time. So we can do this by asking our participants to, all right, guys, we're going to go over the scenes framework today. If you remember what the scenes framework is, write it down in the chat. 
Ah, oh, fabulous. All right, now the next thing we're going to talk about is the C from the Scenes Framework. If you remember what the C is, write that down in the chat. Those kinds of calls to action are going to reinforce that learning for your students. That creates that, that stops that 20 minute 60% um, drop, right? So now how do we deal with the next day? Well, we give them homework and we get them to post it in the group. We get them to share proof that they are actually moving forward. This can take a variety of different forms. Then how do we make sure that a week later we, they still have retained that information? Well, in my opinion, reinforce that learning again in the next week's lesson. Start with a refresher, start with a call to action so that they're commenting, they're engaging, they're using multiple modes in their brain, and then we just start the cycle all over again. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Build on what they've previously learned. Oh, brilliant. Okay, my second tip for you guys is to enhance your one-off trainings with blended learning. So this really applies if you're looking more at a corporate structure or you're looking more at traditional post-secondary education, for example. So instead of just having our people show up to a video training, we have to have ways that we can implement more real-life, on-the-job, person-to-person interaction as well. So maybe you have the ability to get your people together and work on a project together. So to my friend who's working with hammers and nails, um, having your students listen to those foundational lessons, that bottom of our S curve, we can do that um, online. We can watch a bunch of lectures. We can do a couple of quizzes. We can reinforce those basic foundational learnings. And then when it comes to that point where we want to transition them to massive quick progress, that's where we have a project where our people get back together. They can do this virtually, they can do this in person, but they have to now test those skills. Remember back to my, my English presentation? It's that moment that's going, to, that's going to ignite that change in their learning. Look for those opportunities where you can take your people offline and they can apply what they're learning to the real world. That's my tip. That is my million dollar tip for you guys. <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed today's uh, lesson and today's little chat about uh, learning curves. And uh, I hope to hear more about what you guys are doing, how this learning curve applies to your students. If you are currently doing instructional design or you're currently running a course or you're designing a course, let me know what your biggest questions, concerns, obstacles are, and I'd be happy to help you process through those. Come hang out with me in the Visibility Hackers Facebook group. And uh, yeah, you can come hang out every day. We go live. We talk about our live streams. We talk about how we can better um, connect with our audience, connect with our students um, for the purpose of getting them better results, building deeper communities, and ultimately establishing and solidifying our authority in our niche or our industry. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. I'm Coach Molly from visibilityhacking.com. I will see you in our next episode. And until then, remember, I love you and be excellent to each other.